Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 12-7-2022, and we're ready to begin our worship service. We'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time we have this evening. We're, we're grateful for life, health, and strength, and that you have given us the, the opportunity to live another day in this world. We thank you for our calling uh, as we think about the fact that we're in this unique age, that we uh, are special before you. We recognize that, and so it, as we study your word more and more, it begins to dawn upon us that this is what you have called us to be. So Father, as we keep our focus in the, the verses we're in, we pray for wisdom, and we pray for uh, <clears throat> those of us who are struggling and pain, uh, those who are sick among us. Uh, Lord, you know the names that are on each of, of our hearts. Um, even without knowing or mentioning names, you know those names, Father. So we pray for those who are struggling financially, uh, going back and forth to hospitals and doctors, Father, we pray for wisdom in, in their lives. Also, Father, we're praying for those who do not know you, that we might be used as ministers of reconciliation. Put us in, your, in, in their lives, in their circumstances, their daily lives, so that we can speak a word for you, Father. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are studying in the book of Romans, as you know, uh, Romans chapter 11, and we're going to look at verse 27 today. So we'll get to that. Um, so I looked at uh, a couple of thoughts, and, you know, as I thought about this chapter, you know, we, we reference it a lot, and I want, I want to say that these verses that we're in are sort of, for us, classic, because they do describe quite a bit of theology, dispensations. It helps us understand how things unfold in God's plan. So having these verses, um, even if you haven't committed them to memory, you should know what what's in there and you should know how to get to it because these these are pivotal pivotal verses that help us understand the times in which we live and who we are and so forth so Romans 11 is pivotal so what we we will do we'll dig right in we got a few notes so we'll we'll begin so Romans 11:27 says and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So it's a small phrase, but we got a few thoughts. The verse before us has Israel in view. Even though that is the case, I can't help but think about the church. At this point in human history, the church has been, quote, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 
and so we will be with the Lord forever. <clears throat> Unquote. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4.17. The time for, quote, bringing many sons to glory, unquote, is over. We will be in heaven while human history continues without us. If we don't understand our Lord's words now, we will see the reality of them then. Quote, for they are not of this world, of the world, any more than I am of the world. That's John 17, 14. So, for many, for, for the most part, we understand that we're not in this world. Uh, this, I mean, this is not our home. We understand that, but for some reason, I'm thinking a lot of times we operate as though we are living in this world. I mean, after all, we were born here. This is the experience that we have. It is reinforced for us probably every day uh, to renew our minds, to think heavenly thoughts. It's something that is that will have to be a deliberate act on our part. The more we think about what God has said and declared about us, the more it will become reality to us. So at this point in our narrative in Romans 11, we're talking about a transition. We're talking about the church leaving here. Why don't we just get right into some of these points, right? So this is point number one. The first phrase is, and this is my covenant with them. First thought is, the covenant in question is the new covenant to Israel. I just want to read it. Jeremiah 31. I'm going there. If you haven't, I know you, you have read it. So, But we're going to go there and just look at the entirety of it. Uh, it well, I don't want to say the whole thing because we could keep reading this. There's context here. But Jeremiah 31, 31. That's easy to remember, right? If you ever wonder, oh, where's the new covenant? If you could just remember 3131, you got it. Anyway, I'll just read, okay? So the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will no longer teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. This is what the Lord says, He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who declares the moon and the stars and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that it the, its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. 
Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be stretched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. So I thought it was interesting to give verse 36 and 37 on the heels of talking about the new covenant that's coming to Israel. So for sure, this is something that will happen. As we know, we're in Romans chapter 11. The Apostle Paul is discussing this new covenant. He knows where to go to get this understanding as well in Jeremiah. And he knows the surety of it. I just want you to know the surety of it. I just want you to, as you look at these verses, integrate them with the promises of verses 36 and 37. How Israel will never vanish from his sight. How Israel can never, you can never search out the foundations of the earth and below and all of that. There's, it's not gonna happen. In other words, it's impossible that God will ever cast away Israel. So we, we already know this. We have been talking about it already, and so it's not a new thing, but I wanted you to see this new covenant. that God already saw it. He saw this as a part of Israel's future. And we know that this is going to happen. And Paul, as, as we read it in uh, reading it in uh, Romans 11, we don't know it because Paul is saying it. We know it because it was here in Jeremiah. And everything that happened here in the Old Testament <clears throat> is sure. Nothing is abrogated. Uh, as we say, or I said in the opening, uh, once we are taken out of this world stage, then human history will continue just as it has before. It will just pick right up from where it left off. So this is, this is, a, this is the, the scripture that goes along. When we start talking about the covenant to Israel, there really is no covenant to the Gentiles. I, you won't read, a, and this is my covenant with the Gentiles. Why? Because the Gentiles benefit from the same covenant that is to the Jews. So the covenant to the Jews, remember, the Jews were God's priest nation to the world. So what God was doing for Israel, literally he was doing for the whole world. There is no difference. So once Christ died on the cross, and we're, we'll get more to that later, but once he died on the cross, it wasn't just for Jews. It was for all. Everyone born in Adam. Why do we make this whole thing the covenant to the, you know, this is my covenant with them? It's because Jews were God's priest nation. We'll cover that as well as we get to it. So point B, let's move forward. With them, this is my covenant with them. The nation will be under the new covenant. So when we say, does this apply to all Jews? No, no it's not individual. It's talking about the nation Israel. And I say, uh, the nation will be under the new covenant. And finally, 
<laughs> well, I say finally, it's already been just over 2,000 years that the church has been in existence. Uh, finally, since it was ratified with the death and resurrection of Christ, and that was over 2,000 years ago, as you already know. You know where we're sitting in terms of time. And it could be more. We don't know how much more. It could be another thousand years. It could be tomorrow. It's over. We don't know. We're not trying to make um, or, or guess or make assumptions that we do know. We don't. But I can tell you already, 2,000 years has expired. And uh, Israel is still under discipline, as we know. Um, it, those words in Romans 11, there is one verse, I'm going to go back to Romans 11, there's one verse that says, even to the present day, where Paul's saying in Romans 11. So we know uh, from that day to this day, it's been over 2,000 years. So there's no question. So it will be ratified. What, what do we mean by it will be ratified? It means Christ is going to come. He's going to fulfill all the types and shadows that were used to depict his work and his person. And, and through all the, uh, the, the ceremonial uh, things that Israel did and were commanded to do with the blood of bulls and goats and so forth. All, the, all of that typified Christ coming into the world. So, so Israel not only was the one who would teach nations, but God gave them all the tools in order to do that. He gave them grace, told them about salvation. And so Israel had that responsibility. The Messiah would come through Israel. So there was a lot of uh, thought put into how God is going to deliver this message to the world. So point C, let's keep going. <clears throat> so the covenant is active now, but Israel is asleep under discipline. And if I read Romans 11, 7 through 12, here it is. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them the spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. There's to this very day, right? And, and David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution to them. May, they have, may their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So this is a reference to the fact that Israel's coming and God will restore them, right? It's going to, Paul is just postulating 
as he is thinking about this point, he's, he's saying, well, what, what will be, the, well, imagine this, imagine that. All right? And sure enough, what he's trying to tell us is, yeah, imagine how it's going to be glorious when God really does restore the nation Israel to its nation status. So I know a lot of people think about prophecies about oh, oh Israel and uh, took the land in 1944 and this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Nope, this is the church age and it is not until the fullness of the Gentiles come in that God pivots to Israel. Okay, so when we say the covenant is active now, what we're saying is that we're under new covenant principles. Oh, that goes to the next point, right? Uh, point D, the church is benefiting from the covenant principles now. And that's, we're going to look at Hebrews 10 for that one. But just imagine, we function under the new covenant. The, <clears throat> the whole church age began at Pentecost, which was after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So, in essence, we've been under the new covenant from the very beginning. Imagine, that's what I was trying to orient you to, the understanding that Israel, it's been over 2,000 years that the new covenant has been in existence. However, the nation is under discipline. They are sleeping at this point. So, they're not benefiting at all from the new covenant principles. But the church is. Hebrews 10, let's look at a couple of verses here along these lines. Verses 8 through 18. So, verse 8. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. So that says, <clears throat> God instituted the law as a temporary measure that would bring us to what happened when Christ came and actually walked the streets and was sacrificed for our sins. So the law was put in place on a temporary basis. Unfortunately, the Jews wanted to perpetuate the law <coughs> excuse me, beyond its useful purpose. And that would be to... To uh, continue to re first, they rejected Christ, and they said, "No, no, he's not Christ." <coughs> Excuse me. They rejected Christ, so they said, "No, he's not the Christ." In fact, we're going to continue reading the Mosaic Law, which gave rise to Paul writing Second Corinthians chapter three. He talks about a veil is on the there face every time that Moses Mosaic law was read. They didn't want to see the end of it. That was the point. So this is God was pleased with the law, but he when it says he was not pleased uh, with them, he's he's it's to say that they don't fully accomplish the satisfaction for sin. Those sacrifices, they don't. Bulls and blood of bulls and goats so it's kind of an interesting, yeah, when it says he wasn't pleased with them, but he did authorize them because that was until Christ came. <clears throat> Verse 9, then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. The first is 
the old covenant. The second is the new covenant. So once the new covenant begins, there is no going back to the old covenant. It's over. He sets that aside. He wasn't pleased with that anyway. Right? Remember, that wasn't, well, let's not say he wasn't pleased with it from that perspective. He, he authorized it. It was in the law, but he wasn't propitiated by the blood of bulls and goats, not ultimately for sin. It was a covering. But now, <clears throat> Christ came. He paid for the sins of the world. This is what he says. I'm coming now. Here I am. It satisfies the Father. And it accomplishes reconciliation. Sets, sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ. Notice, once for all. He does not have to go like the priests year after year, or, or I should keep reading day after day, verse 11. Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again, he, again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Well, God authorized them to do that because Christ hadn't come yet. It was to look toward Christ. Verse 12, but when this priest, Christ is a priest, had offered for all time, notice, for all time, that's the old, all those who, who were in the Old Testament, that includes Adam and every person born from Adam to every person that will be born in time. There it is, for all time, right? he sat down. He offered one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by, the sac for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So that will be us right now in particular. Because we're, we are the ones benefiting from the new covenant. As I said, the nation Israel is asleep at this point in time. So <clears throat> we're benefiting from new... The, the, the new covenant is for Israel. When people read it, it's the new covenant to Israel. So w w do we say we're under the new covenant to Israel? No, we don't. Technically, we're not. Because we're not Israel. But we are the church, and we're in the place of Israel, which is to say that we are under new covenant. I say it this way, we're under new covenant principles. So the new covenant to Israel does not happen until the church leaves. Then Israel will resume its responsibilities as a priest nation to the world. So just that caveat, hopefully it's not confusing if it is lay it on the table so we can talk about it more. Point E in our notes. This is one E. Not only will Israel be under the new covenant, <clears throat> right? This is Revelation 7, 5 through 8, where you can read, God says, don't hurt the earth or the sea or anything until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads, right? So that's and he tells them 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe. What does that do? It establishes, again, on the earth, 
the nation Israel. It's not the nation Israel that's over there now. Because those over there now are not the servants of God. They don't believe in Christ. Well, the leadership. I'm not saying everybody over there. So we're not talking individually. We're talking about the leadership. They don't believe. So, um, but when that happens, Israel will be under the new covenant. But Israel will assume their role in the world as God's priest nation among nations. So if Israel is going to take that role, obviously the church is gone. The church is no longer here. God does not operate with the church in Israel at the same time. As soon as the church is gone, what happens? God turns his attention toward Israel. As we read last week, this is my covenant with them. Right? Let's, let's just read it. Um, oh, I'm still in Hebrews. Hold on. Let's go to Romans 11. So it says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not, you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. Now notice, we've been talking about that hardening, meaning they've been asleep, until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, in other words, once God finishes with the church, he's going to turn to Israel. In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, he quotes again, we already uh, covered this last week, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And he, he will bring this new covenant into play. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We'll get to that point. So, so that's interesting to me as I think about how this all works. We're under the new covenant now. Uh, I think we understand it here, but you may talk to people that may not fully grasp. And we read the new covenant so that you could see the principles, some of the things that shall not teach their neighbor, saying, know the Lord. Because why, why is that? Because Christ will literally be here. The new covenant spans not only from, it begins at the tribulation when God begins to restore Israel to its nation status. That happens in the tribulation. But he continues with Israel and he comes to rescue Israel and those who are waiting for him and he establishes his kingdom on the earth. That kingdom in the millennium will be under new covenant principles. And that's where he says they shall not teach his neighbor and saying know the Lord. Right? So all of that happens during the millennium. Christ will literally be on the earth at that time. So point number two, let's keep going. Well, it says, and this is my covenant with them, with them, that's the nation Israel, when I take away their sins. Let's go over a couple of thoughts. These are basic thoughts, but uh, just one of a couple things that may have some twists in them that I just want to make sure you're aware of. When will this be? And as we already discussed, God will turn to Israel directly after the rapture. We just read 25 and 26, where he says, <coughs> this is my, uh, Israel has experienced hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. So we, we discussed that point of when it will be, and this is when he takes away their sins. It won't do it while Israel is on 
uh, I'm sorry, well, the church is on, on the ground. The church will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And point B, take away their sins. What do we mean, take away their sins? So <clears throat> there are two features to know about this statement. Right? Let's think about it. One is Christ died for the sins of the whole world on the cross. That's Romans 3, 25 and 26. If we quickly read that, <clears throat> we already talked about Hebrews from the standpoint of Hebrews, but 3, 25 and 6 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So from the past all the way through the present to the future, Christ is the only sacrifice, not just for Jews, but for all mankind, all humanity. He's the sacrifice. So... But we're talking about, in context, Israel, how it happened. And this is the time when, uh, so when we talk about Christ died for the sins of the whole world on the cross, that's what we mean in Romans 3.25 and 3.26. So that's one aspect. Um, when Christ died on the cross, if you think about it, that's been 2,000 years ago. That already happened. So all the sins that Israel committed, including the sins where they crucified the Lord of glory. All of those sins, uh, even though God, Christ paid for them when he went to the cross, they are not, quote, taken away from Israel. Now, what do we mean by that? Uh, let's, let's just, so we understand the first point. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. That was a point in time. And it, that point in time spans from Adam to the last person that would be born in Adam. So that's a point in time when he did that. So that's when he made provision for those sins. Point number two. Take away sins. It refers to their reconciliation. Now we could... We, personally, could be used as an example here. Christ died for our sins on the cross. That was 2,000 years ago. But we were not reconciled until we believed in Christ. Now, what does it mean? It, it means that um, there's a different understanding when it says, when I take away their sins. Because we know that the sins were paid. God is propitiated, right? The provision has been made. But reconciliation doesn't occur until the person believes. Now, as we already know, we're talking about Israel as a nation. This is, I will turn godlessness away from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I shall take away their sins. So it refers to reconciliation that God is, when he says, when I take away their sins. That's what it means, reconciliation. So even though your sins were paid, <clears throat> right? You can't pay for them. They were already paid. God's not counting them against us. But what about that? The fact that God did that. Do you believe in him? Do you believe in Christ? And if you do, 
then God reconciles you, right? Christ, he already took your sins. God's not counting them against you. But that is used, that's the ground that is used to offer salvation to us. It is upon the death, the work of Christ. Right? So we, same thing happened to us. Point number three. Let's look at this point. Further, another word for reconciliation is forgiveness. And I'm hoping you've seen this before. If not, we'll just go through a couple scriptures just to kind of play this out. Forgiveness. So Colossians, well, Ephesians is the first. Ephesians 1, 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So the forgiveness of sins in Christ, that's where we have all of this. Right? We have redemption through his blood. That means um, Christ paid for the sins of all mankind through the shedding of blood. This is how it, uh, the analogy is used. Uh, came from the Old Testament through the blood. The animal had to shed his blood. They're using this analogy to talk about how Christ paid for our sins. All of our sins were imputed to Christ on the cross and judged. <clears throat> so that's the redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. Now, if, you, if it's in Christ, you have to be reconciled to Christ. That's how we receive forgiveness for all our sins. What does it mean? forgiveness. We know God is propitiated, meaning he's satisfied with the work of Christ on our behalf. What does it mean that we're forgiven? It means that we are reconciled to God. That's what it means. So see that this point number three is that uh, take away sins for Israel here means their reconciliation. It means that God's going to forgive them for their sins at this point. Now, forgiveness just means reconciliation. It is not something Israel has to do. We don't have to seek it. All we have to do is, all Israel has to do is believe in Christ. They've been rejecting him all these years. Now they're going to receive him. And, and to them, he's going to, he's going to, they will receive, as a result of them believing on his name, they will receive this reconciliation or Another way to say it is forgiveness. Now, in Ephesians 1.7, he's using the church because he's talking about the church in Ephesians 1.7. We have forgiveness of sins. Not some sins. This is not related to 1 John 1.9 where it says he, he will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's something else. We'll get to that next. But this refers to all of our sins. We receive reconciliation. Forgiveness means, so it's just like baptism. I say, what does baptism mean? I would expect everybody to say identification. One object, object is identified with another object so that the properties of the, the, that object are changed to the properties of the initial object. We know identification, baptism. <clears throat> this is another way to see forgiveness. Forgiveness means reconciliation. So, for instance, is another way to harm, uh, you could say it. If somebody harms you, right, somebody does something to you and it's bad, you could offer forgiveness to them. 
right? Meaning you don't have any hard feelings, right, in your heart about that person. That's in one way a, a, a matter of taking care of your own heart, that you don't have any harbor any feelings of resentment or hatred or anything. But it doesn't mean that you are reconciled with the person. So if the person, if you, you let the person know what they did, and they confess, or they, you know, they confess to you, then you can be reconciled again, which means you can resume whatever relationship you have with that person. <clears throat> Once, but but notice again, forgiveness means reconciliation, the resumption of fellowship with that person. In the same way, um, we have. In a broad sense, let's just look at it how what I've written here. We could use the example here. Christ died for our sins on the cross, but we were not reconciled until we believed in Christ. Now, it's interesting. Israel was a mixed multitude. Right? So Israel, they had a racial identity, a new racial identity, meaning on, on the heritage of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you could be in Israel, but not be a believer. Not truly, but you had the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you still had to believe in Christ. Some of them didn't. Israel developed a pattern of resisting the Holy Spirit where they had this big lie, thought that they could be righteous by keeping the law, which was wrong. So, in all in all, you had a mixed multitude when it came to Israel. And this is what Stephen says in Acts 7.51. You do always resist the Holy Spirit just as your forefathers did, so do you. The very issue there that Stephen was preaching to them about was Jesus Christ. And they were rejecting him and they stoned Stephen. So they were not reconciled. They were not forgiven of their sins. Forgiveness is also termed another one, the remission of your sins. But it still means reconciliation. It means, that's what forgiveness means in that analogy. Now, how are you going to know that? If you're reading some scripture and you're not quite sure, what you've got to look at the context. That's how you're going to know. What is it? Is it talking about salvation forgiveness? If it's talking about salvation, that's one thing. It happens in a moment of time, and it refers to reconciliation. I know I'm jumping down to point number C here. Uh, or actually, that's, yeah, so point number, let's look at a couple. We're, we're at point number three, B3 in our notes. Further, another word for reconciliation is forgiveness. Let's look at a couple other verses. Colossians 1.14, before we get to point C. Colossians one. 14 says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, notice, we receive this in Christ. Since we're in Christ, we have all this, right? And then 2.13 says, when you were dead in your sins and in, your, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Notice, he forgave us all our sins. So when it comes to salvation, he uses this this is the way he says it. He forgave us all our sins. Really, all it means is we were reconciled to, to God. 
That's what it means. Our sins are not standing between us and Christ because even though Christ paid the price, all we did was believe. And that believing causes us to be reconciled to God. What does God in turn say? We, are, we, we now have this reconciliation. He forgave us all our sins. We didn't do anything. We didn't confess all of our sins. None of that makes any sense anyway. So that's the thought. Is When they're talking about salvation, forgiveness, that's what they mean. That's why you don't confess your sins in order to, to have salvation. It is something we receive. All, all that's required for salvation is that we believe. Point number C. So just to sum it up, and then we'll get ready to go to our Q&A. There are two forms of reconciliation or forgiveness. So two ways to look at this. One, as we already said, is salvation forgiveness. It happens in the moment of time. And all of our sins are included in that. There's no... God didn't say, well, I'm forgiving you some of your sins, and now you have to confess the other. No, all your sins are included under salvation, forgiveness, or reconciliation. Done. Uh, so the second one is what we call fellowship forgiveness. Right? So let's look at a couple of scriptures along those lines. Matthew 6, 12 through 14. You might just, I should say, people get these mixed up. And they try to use them for salvation, which is bad. <laughs> look, let's look at it. It takes away salvation by grace. Verse 12 through 14. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Right? Now this is within the Lord's Prayer. The disciples came to him and said, Lord, can you help us with this? Show us how to pray. And Jesus came with this prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So people say, well, see, that's salvation. If you don't forgive others, then others, uh, you will not receive forgiveness from God. This is again about fellowship. Right? This is not about salvation. This assumes that it's a worshiper, someone who's praying, he, it assumes they already have salvation. So that's... So let's keep going. For, for if you forgive other people, this is verse 14, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So again, this is not about, not about uh, salvation. This is uh, fellowship with God. That's something we should, should have in mind. And then there's 11, Matthew 11, 25. Let's look at that. Uh, 11, 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things. Is that the right one? Uh, that is not the one that I'm referring to. I think that's wrong. You might have to change your notes here. Let's see. Give me a sec. I'll find it for you. Oh. It's Mark eleven twenty five, not Matthew. Please change your notes. Uh, let's see. So let's just say it's Mark. Okay, so let's go to Mark. And 
Look at that. Mark 11 and 25 says, And when you stand praying, again, this assumes that a person is going to God and praying to God. Here, here's, If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. Remember, you remove the malice, the revenge motivation, the resentment in your heart. Give that to God. Put them in the hands of God. Forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Okay, so, so in other words, you're praying to, the, to God, but you have this in your heart, right? It's, you, you, the objective, this is obviously for Israel, but still the principle is the same. It's about fellowship. It is not about salvation. Israel did not have a salvation by works. And it was by grace, just as it is for us. So it, still, the principle is the same. And also, the famous scripture that you already know, 1 John 1, 9. And invariably, what happens in these scriptures is people use them and they get them confused with salvation. I'll read 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he, this is obviously, if you... Before you to confess a sin, you must know that you committed a sin. That means God the Holy Spirit has brought it to your heart, and you know consciously that you have sinned. There's no doubt about it. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. What does it mean, forgive us our sins, in this context? What does that mean? We have salvation? No, it means that he restores fellowship. So if we consciously... Uh, Sin, as I said, we step, we we walk in darkness, just like it says um, uh, in verse six. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, right? Uh, that we lie and do not live according, live out the truth. Well, if we confess our sins, meaning we know what we did, and we stepped out of line with God, we know we violated something that is clearly He brought to our attention. What do we do? We confess it. We name that sin, we admit that sin to God, and he's faithful, and he's just, and he will forgive. Forgive here means restoration to fellowship. Fellowship with who? God. That's who we're out of line, out of step with, with God. So if we confess he is faithful and just, he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So this is, uh, we're talking the restoration of fellowship. So we could call that fellowship forgiveness, because even in the, uh, the cases where God mentions it in Israel, salvation is not conditioned on whether you forgive somebody or not. That would be salvation by works. Salvation, but, but when you're praying, and, and, and this is, there was one scripture, if you, if you bring offering, if you're coming to worship God and you have your offering, he says, look, just leave your offering there. Go reconcile with your brother. Come back and then worship. Because you got this thing, this beef going on with your brother. Then you ought to get that straightened out and then come back. So in other words, it's about the heart condition. Fellowship with God can't be trying to have fellowship with God and have hatred in your heart. Those things don't go together. God is saying, come, you have to come clean. If you're coming to me, come, come clean. 
But this is not in about about salvation. It's about worship. It's about fellowship. So, in any case, I think that I have beat that horse to death. <laughs> but if not, then we're going to pause for a minute to uh, to talk. Uh, you know, oh, we're on the Q and A. You know, so I'm going to open the floor up and give you guys some opportunity for some feedback or whatever questions. What's on your heart? The floor is open. Okay. So... Shall, shall I, I guess uh, there are no questions, uh, not, not at the present, but can I ask you a question? Did you know that there were two, two forms of reconciliation? Oh, go right ahead, Bill. Okay. Earlier, in the discourse, you had mentioned about the covenant. Um, so can you liken Israel in the new covenant to... Uh, the churches indwelling, filling, and uh, sealing of the Spirit um, in the way that He's going to write it in their hearts and in their minds. No, I don't think so. To, but none of those. No, the the benefits of uh, obviously, my, well, and the way I'm seeing it is the benefits of the mystery are only for the church, right? They're, and when we talk about the baptism and so forth, now the Holy Spirit does have some over overlapping purposes, like especially when it comes to salvation, right? Because salvation was for every age. So he does work in the hearts of man, convicting of sin, so that they could turn to Christ, right? Convicting, like Christ says, of sin because they believe not on me of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So the Holy Spirit is at work. He's always been at work in the hearts of man, except when people in the millennium or who the Jews, when they're under the new covenant, when it says, I will write my, my laws in their hearts and in their minds, notice they're under the Mosaic law. So while... They didn't have the power to obey the law in the Old Testament. The law condemned them. But they were supposed to live under the law as a way of life as well. Well, in this case, they will have believed in Christ and they will have the power of the Spirit. Not to fulfill the, the mystery age doctrines and un, uh, uh, principles, but they will be they will have the Spirit's help to help them fulfill the law as a way of life, the Mosaic law. And that's under the New Covenant. Yeah, I, I wasn't trying to, to, to depict that it was the same. I was trying to ask, will any of those fit as a type? Um, you know, I mean... That's something new that's going to come to Israel that they didn't have before, even though it's available now. 
No, I didn't. I didn't think you 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 were were saying it was the same. <laughs> I didn't. I understood that what you were saying, and I think <clears throat> I was using it to distinguish that there are some things to look at, right? So if a person and, and there is that scripture where people try to relate, where it says, "Ah, and I I will write my laws in their minds and in their hearts. I will write them, and they will no longer this and right." So people try to relate that to what's going on in the church age, and it is not the same. So this is one of the reasons, and you're going to hear, so whether or not your question related to that, you will hear people talk about the new covenant and talk about the Holy Spirit and so forth being written in our minds and our hearts. But notice, what is he teaching? The law, right? That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's emboldening them to live according to the law. Now, part of the, let me just say, this may not be directly related to your question. Part of Israel's problem in the first place under the old covenant, why they failed so so drastically, was because they refused to believe in Christ. By refusing to believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit could never turn to them and focus on them li- using living under the law as a way of life. He couldn't empower them to do that because they weren't saved. So that's why it says, you know, Paul says in Romans 3, 9, are we any better, we Jews? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. So what has God, God, God the Holy Spirit got to do? He's got to bring them to salvation. And the Jews resisted that. So had they not resisted that, they would have had the Holy Spirit at their disposal to be able to help them live the spiritual life that was required of them to go out and teach the nations salvation by grace. So we learned, we learned that more so in Romans chapter 10. That was where we saw, Paul says, he comes right out and says, their problem is this. (laughs) They didn't, they were lost. Okay. There's other ways he says it as well. But, but so there is no type, I would say, for the mystery because I'm just following them what the scripture says. There's no types or shadows in the Old Testament. It says it was hidden God. So God would not reveal anything in any form. So one of the things about, um, when we talk about types and shadows, is it'd be one thing. There are types and shadows in the Old Testament, and that is mostly to do with salvation. Because Christ hadn't come yet, he was depicted in so many different types and shadows. But now that he has come, he fulfilled all those types and shadows, and we read in Hebrews chapter 10 how he is set aside the first, and now it's all about what he's doing under the new covenant principles. So yes, now I don't know if I've answered your question or not. So go back and just just reiterate what what you were saying, and I'll I'll try to address it. Yeah, no, no, you, you answered it. I, I was just considering, you know, what the church has, and we, we know that Israel will never receive what the church has, but it, but there, like you said, there are types. And the fact that um, they will, God writes his words in their hearts and in their minds, that could be like in, sort of like an indwelling or 
like a um, could be like a baptism, but it's almost could be like an umbrella. That's that's what I was considering. Yeah, you know, the, the interesting thing it never says that he would have that the uh, Israel would have an indwelling. He does talk about it. Uh, where it says your sons and daughters will prophesy and dream dreams. And so all of that activity is by means of the Spirit. And we, we should note that. The, the Holy Spirit, once a person saved, God the Holy Spirit is involved in their lives. There's no doubt. Now, especially as we get to uh, the tribulation and the millennium, there's going to be more... Uh, displays of this type of behavior so we can expect that to be the case so uh, but but now or or let's say previously it, it never says that the Holy Spirit would indwell anybody um, so if there was ever if I was going to use a one of the a assets that we have to think about what Israel had, I would think more about the filling of the Spirit. <clears throat> so, now, even though this is not the same, because the filling of the Spirit for Israel had to do with them, their life. What, and, and it doesn't say, it doesn't even use the terms filling of the Spirit, and it wasn't available to everybody. But when the Spirit did empower people, certain people, he would empower them, give them the ability to do his will, to perform his will for their purpose, for Israel's purpose. But for the filling of the Spirit now, for us, we permanently have it. Obviously, we can grieve the Spirit and quench the Spirit. But the, the filling of the Spirit is there for teaching, right? So that we can understand this new age, who we are in Christ, Right? The mystery, all that is why we have the filling of the Spirit. It is not so that we could just keep the law, right? or we could be moral, or that we uh, should somehow go back to the Mosaic Law and, and, and find out how they lived and fulfill the purposes that they had. No, it's for our purpose that was hidden from Israel completely. Israel has no idea about what our purpose is. So that's why when the spirit of truth comes to us, it's a brand new ministry, never before seen. It is for the unique purpose of the church. So this is where I think so many people have distorted the, the purpose of the spirit of truth in this age. They have gone from everywhere. Oh, it's, I just feel it. He's right now, the Holy Spirit is speaking to me. He's telling me this or... He's telling me that, or when the whole, per Jesus laid out what the foundation of the spirit of truth would be for the church. He laid it out, so we should know the purpose of the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't try to uh, extend that purpose into things that are just, you know, for God trying to tell us, you know, daily things. It doesn't say the Spirit doesn't intimately work with us personally, but his main objective is to fulfill the purpose for which God called us. And first, we've got to be enlightened to that. And what do we see in 1 Corinthians? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man. These are the things the Spirit has revealed to us. Right? This is what we speak. This is what we teach. Right? 
a lot of stuff that's going on in churches now are focused on temporary gifts, us being blessed in some kind of way, you know, getting looking at God as though he were some sort of genie in the bottle. We rub him right. He gives us what we want. All those things. I guess we need to talk more about the ministry of the Spirit. It is so important that we uh, understand it because then we can understand what it is also not as well. Uh, I will pause. Other thoughts out there? Good evening. Uh, just one quick thought. I know we're running a long time, but we have time. Uh, scriptures clearly say that Christ is the end of the law for those who believe, and Christ fulfilled the law while He walked here on earth. Um, I know that the law was Israel's, who was supposed to be the priestation for the for the then known world. You know, they failed, and the law was supposed to be how they lived. But the, my question is, I, 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 I know God says he's going to revisit the law by writing it on the inner parts of their heart. So if, my question is, if Christ was the end of the law for the church age, I guess he, because the Jews failed, he wants to return what the Jews failed in the law, even though he fulfilled it? Um, So, let me see if I can answer you this way. Um, It's a great question because we need to have this sorted in our minds so we can be absolutely sure. So the law has two purposes. The one purpose we have is for everybody. Right, so if I go to Romans chapter 3, here it is, verse 19. Here's a good example. Now we know that whatever the law says, this is 319, it says to those who are under the law. Now who's under the law? Who's under the law? Now if we pause, we just have, well, I just, I could go back to Romans 3 9, where it says, do we have any advantage? No, we are all under sin, right? So, but here it says we're all, that says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. I think that describes under the law. And I think that describes Jew and Gentile. So Jew and Gentile are under what we would call the condemnation of the law. We saw that in also 2 Corinthians 3, 7, and 9, where it says the law is the minister of death. It says the law is the minister of condemnation. Because the law is there, it was added so that the trespass might increase. Or or we could go to Romans 3.20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather... Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So we, the law is like a mirror. It will reflect upon ourselves. Remember, it's supposed to help us understand we're condemned. It's supposed to help us understand we're dead, separated from God. And yet, people have tried to use it in a wrong way. Okay, and so... Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, I 
I'm sorry, I cut you off. But isn't there another scripture where it says to those who are perishing? Those who are perishing? Well, there is another scripture that talks about we know that the law is good if, a, if, if one uses it properly. It is not for whoremongers and this and that, and, right? It is for, for them to see who they are, right? That's in, I believe, one of, I think it's in Timothy. But, but this tells us that the law, that the purpose for the law, the scope of it is everybody. Everybody. The whole world, not just Jews, everybody. But then the law was also given to Israel. So the law, the second purpose of the law is a way of life. And that would mean that Israel has a unique way of life uh, because they are God's priest nation among other nations. That is their objective is to go. And because God made them a peculiar nation, how, why are they so peculiar? It's because of the law that they have that's different from other nations. But the differences accentuate the gospel, right? Everything that they do accentuates the gospel. So no, they're not going back to the, the Jews under the law, under the new covenant, are, go, are not going back to animal sacrifices at all. They're not going to worship in the same way they did in the old covenant. They will be worshiping under the new covenant, which is different which is, which is a recognition of who Christ is, the fact that he came and that he fulfilled the, the, the condemnation part of the law. Right? He, nobody has to, uh, you know, even though everybody's condemned, God has a, a solution now, and he, Christ is that solution. So, so, yes, they will still have their function. They still have their job to do, which is to be the priest nation to the world, and what dictates uh, them being able to have the rules and an understanding of what their job is and what they're to do, the Mosaic Law does. It identifies who they are and what they're supposed to do. So those two ways of seeing the law are important for us because we don't want to only look at one. Oh, the condemnation law. Christ said he was the end of the law. What do you mean the end of the law? For righteousness. Right, so you can't. If we go to Romans uh, ten, right, that's what he's talking about. He says, "Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved." So we know we're talking about salvation. We know that when he brings up the law, that's what he's going to be dealing with. So, for I can testify about them, they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God. That's what Christ brings, right? Imputation. And sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end or the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So the end of the law, so the law was supposed to what? Bring you to Christ. Why would the law do that? That's what Galatians says. The law was a schoolmaster leads us that was to lead us to Christ. But then once we believe in Christ, we're not under the schoolmaster anymore. The, the function of the law is supposed to show us that we're dead and leads us to Christ. Once, once we believe in Christ, we're not under that law, the, that part of the law anymore. So the law doesn't look at us and say condemn because we've got the imputed righteousness of Christ now. So the law, that function of the law 
That's why it says it's good for whoremongers and adulterers and drunkards. And, because it still shows them, the law can still be used to show them so that every mouth may be silenced and held accountable to God. But for people who are saved, we have the righteousness of Christ. The law can't say anything to us. It doesn't look at us and say condemned. Because if it said condemned to us, then it would be saying condemned to Christ. Because we are righteous because of Christ. So the law can never say condemned to us. Christ fulfilled the law, meaning he is the only man, the only representative that has actually pleased God while he was here. He pleased God. And so, if, if you're not in Christ, if you don't have Christ's righteousness, then you stand on your own two feet, where the law will basically condemn you. God, God's righteousness condemns you, and it's justice. So, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but keep, them, keep in mind, those two features are ways to look at the law. It's not just the one. But the other one's just for the Jews. <laughs> the Gentiles says the Gentiles who did not even have the law. Well, they didn't, no, they didn't have the law from that standpoint as a way of life. They didn't. They didn't know God's will. They didn't know, understand what, what God was. Gentiles did not have the law. But from another way of looking at it, the, they are subject to the law. Now, of course, Israel was supposed to teach them that, right? <laughs> but they didn't because they refused to to uh, believe in Christ themselves. How could they teach grace when they themselves rejected it? I'll pause. Fred, other thoughts? Uh, uh, we'll, we, we'll revisit it. I think, uh, I think by 50% of my question is answered, but we can, I, I can ask this later. I'm, I'm pretty much satisfied. All right, well, we'll Bill? Follow up. No, no, that was good. The perishing part was was wasn't about the law; it was about the gospel. <laughs> My bad. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so we got a couple more minutes, but if, if there's anything we can talk about, that's something that we didn't cover. Okay. One, one, one of one other thing. Sure. Okay, so in the where it talked about mission fellowship, um, the last one of the I moved from it. Let me just go back to it. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, fellowship forgiveness. Yes. But this fellowship forgiveness has nothing to do with that salvation. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, it has to. The person has to be saved in order to have it. Yeah. Fellowship. You have to forgive me. Yeah, you can't have fellowship with God, and you can't properly worship God if you're not saved. So, so I wouldn't say it doesn't have anything to do with salvation, but it 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 the the focus of it is not salvation. So, in other words, a person says, "Well, I need to, I got I got ought against my brother, so so I'm going, I'm trying to get saved here. So let me let me." Um, Forgive my brother so I can get saved. Nope, that's not that's not the what it what is in view there. What's in view there is worshiping God, praying to God, and these are functions that 
uh, people who are already saved have uh, available to them. People who are not saved cannot pray to God, cannot have fellowship with God. So, but but I don't know if that's your point, but I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. I was. I must have been when you when you went over that last part. I was waiting for you to get to it, but I guess I just didn't hear the words. I was looking closer. Yeah. But I had when I had the new words uh, going through all the different one, two, threes. Okay. Yeah, so we can't, well, I know this is not your question, but the thought, back to that thought, we can't, um, you know, once we, we come to God and we're saved, you know, our, confessing our sins uh, is only a matter of fellowship. That's what some people, you will run across people who will have this thought. Right. They'll say, oh, I got to confess my sins. They'll use First John 1, 9 as confession of sin, which is totally wrong. All you have to do is read the context. It's very easy to, to help them understand that. No, it's not re referring to confessing your sins for salvation. It's talking about fellowship. And that's for believers. Only believers can possibly have this fellowship with the Father and, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The fellowship is also facilitated by the Holy Spirit. So you, you certainly need God uh, and the Father, Son, and Spirit in order to have this fellowship. You certainly are not an unbeliever trying to confess your sins. You don't even know all your sins. It's, it's kind of ridiculous to think about when people say they have to repent of all their sins in order to be saved. That's... What are we talking about here? How in the world would we pop? We'd be there all day trying to remember all our sins. And then we'd say, well, I'm sure I haven't remembered all my sins. I haven't even committed all the sins that I'm going to commit yet. So how can I confess them? Anyway, it, 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 it doesn't make any sense. On the one hand, it says all our sins are forgiven. And then on the other hand, it says if we forget, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So which is it? Right, so we'd have to help people understand that there are two forms of of this, of this type of. So when we say reconciliation, what do we mean? We mean forgiveness. When we say forgiveness, we mean reconciliation. It could mean toward salvation, or it could mean toward prayer or fellowship. Right, that's that's how we have to understand it. Just like there are two forms of the law, right? Whether we're talking about Christ is the end of the law. Well, because the Jews are going to be under the law again. Right? They're going to be back under the law, but not under the old covenant. They're going to be under the new covenant, which is different. It's a lot different than being under the old covenant. We're going to have to finish up with this. I know we're over our time, but we'll, we'll keep on sorting these things out, hopefully. Um, if you have questions, we'll be back Sunday, God willing. So even uh, even if I'm on the road, we're going to do a Q&A. So stand by. I'll keep you posted as to where we are and what's going on. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for this time we have uh, this this evening and where we, were, we have been able to discuss these matters. We thank you for putting these words in front of us. Thank you for the questions and the thoughts. And we pray that uh, as we continue out, throughout this week, that you will continue to challenge us. Help us to focus our attention 
on your word so that we can understand how to walk in this world. We can have wisdom. All of this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And-